Our scripture lesson today comes from the good news, the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 11. Uh, But before we read this together, let me give us just a tiny bit of context before we read this. Jesus' public ministry is about a thousand days, right? Three years. And yet more than half of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, focus in on the last seven, these last seven days. And so we begin to look at these last seven days together this week. Let's share in God's good word now. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. With Ash Wednesday, we began a sermon series called The Way, and we went up to the mountain with Jesus at the Transfiguration where he was with Elijah and Moses. We went down to the seashore by the Sea of Galilee along Tiberias and Capernaum, and we saw Jesus ministering to those who were sick, those who were demon-possessed, those who were hungry, he fed them, those who needed shelter, he gave it to them, those who needed healing, he brought that to them. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I've come now, and in his first sermon in Capernaum, he says, I'm here to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And Jesus began his public ministry. And now we come down to the last seven days of his life. On Sunday, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and by Friday, he's on the cross. Five days from celebration to the worst torture known at that time or even in our time. The Romans had it down to a disgusting art. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out as we look at this week that changed the entire world. Even time itself is separated from that time before this event and time after this event. We today live roughly 2,017 years after this event. Give or take about four years, depending on what scholar you read. These five to seven days are the days that change the entire universe. Because God himself had come in the person of Jesus. The world didn't fully understand it then. We don't fully understand it now. But we catch a glimpse of the power and the might of a loving God who doesn't want you far from him, but wants to draw you to himself. And so to set this up in the context of the time, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem just as the week-long festival of Passover was about to begin. Now, to understand Passover, we have to go back 1,300 years uh, where the, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, they were enslaved by Egypt, and they had been so for 400 years under the pharaohs of Egypt. Now, this was um, really the quintessential story of what Judaism was about, that God saved them, pulled them through the Red Sea, God opened the sea for them so that they could escape, and then when the Egyptians tried to follow, he closed the sea on the Egyptians. And and so it was proof that God loved the Israelites over and against other people who would enslave them. The the name Passover actually comes from a few days earlier where the final plague of the ten plagues was that the spirit of death would come over Egypt. And unless you had followed these exact rules that included a perfect, spotless, blameless lamb where you put blood over the doorposts as God instructed, if you didn't do that, then the spirit of death would kill your firstborn of everything, every livestock, every animal, every child. And so the Jews, they did that. They did exactly as God instructed, and they were spared. The spirit of death passed over those homes. That's where they get the name. And the firstborn of everybody else died. And weeping like the world had never known, 
and crying and mourning and sadness covered all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said, get out of here. We can't take this anymore. You must leave. And they did. And God saved them through the sea. This is what Passover was about. And they would gather on the, thir- on the Thursday in the month of Nisan, which is after the spring equinox. That's why Easter always changes, friends. is because it can't start. Passover doesn't start till the Thursday after the spring equinox. So it's got to be sometime after March 21st. Um, but it, it also has to be after the first full moon. And so this, this shifts on us. That's why it always, last year was in March, this year it's in April. And, and so they would gather every year. And by the time Jesus came to gather at this meal, in the same way, celebrating God's faithfulness to them, their freedom from slavery, freedom in their life, new power in their life, they had been away from that event for 1,300 years. And yet they gathered again. It was a family tradition. It was a national tradition. And it was in this tradition that the city of Jerusalem swelled to more than 200,000 people. Visitors from all over the area would come in for this journey. Celebrating Israel's defining story of how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Now, let's do a little history on our own. Any of you all get your families together around event, uh, around 1776? Any particular date that you gather? July 4th. Thank you, Carolyn. All right. So she is our lay leader. She knows these things. And, and so July 4th, 1776, what happened? We were freed from the tyranny of Britain, right? They could no longer tell us what to do. We're free. And we gather every year for more than 200 years now. And we celebrate that we are no longer a colony or enslaved or have to pay taxes to this foreign government over us, right? And we gather our family. This is my favorite time of year. I know I'm your pastor, but this is like my only non-working holiday. July 4th. It's great. So I gather our family. Oftentimes, we'll travel to the beach. Any of y'all ever go to the beach for the 4th of July? You have your you know, week long, and you drive down. There's all this traffic. You're all backed up because everybody's going on the 4th of July. Every year. Does this make sense? Some of you have done, how many of you all have done something fun on the 4th of July? Right? Right. You do that. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's great. And do you do it every year or just every once in a while? Every year. Comes around every year. That's how it was for Passover. It was this national holiday of their freedom from an oppressive power. So let's, let's just take this a little further. Um, we'll use this metaphor. Let's pretend for a moment, in your mind's eye, that is the year 3076. 3076. That's 1,300 years from 1776. My hunch is that we're all gone. But we might have our great, 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 great grandchildren headed to the beach on July 4th. Maybe. But it's also possible that 100 years from now, 200 years from now, next week, Russia will own our country. Or someone else. There's no telling. You see, in Israel, their heyday was from the year 722 B.C., 922 B.C. to 722 B.C. They had 200 years of prosperity under David, under Solomon. Things were great. They built the temple. They had wealth like they had never known. They had relative peace and prosperity. Um, Anybody that tried to attack them, they pushed them back. Life was great for 200 years. That was their story. But then the country began to fall apart. You have the David and Bathsheba incident. Uh, You have death after that. Solomon makes alliances with... um, 
godless countries that, that didn't work starts to fall apart. And by 722, the northern half of the country had fallen to Assyria. And they were enslaved over there. And by 586 B.C., the southern kingdom, known as Judah, had fallen to what's now modern-day Iraq, to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon power. After that, they would come back and try to rebuild. They'd go back and forth. They'd be overrun by the Persian kingdom, the Seleucid kingdom, the Ptolemaic kingdom, and over and over again. But by the time Jesus comes to the scene, it's been 1,300 years from their heyday. It's a long time. And now there is a new boot on their neck. And who is that? Rome. And so Jesus, for 1,300 years, they have talked about this messianic figure, this person who would come and save them again, who would raise them up, who would make the crooked places straight, who would heal the people, who would feed the people. And they looked at Jesus and said, finally, that heyday is coming back. But Jesus had something different in mind. And so what happens at Passover is, yes, all the Jews are coming in, but not just the Jews. Because if you're the ruling power... You're going to make sure that you're there. I mean, just think about it. If, if you're the ruling power and there's about to be a festival about how to kick you away from them and to overthrow you, you're going to show up, aren't you? You're going to have a show of force because you don't want anything bad to happen on your watch. And so there was more than one king riding into Jerusalem that week. That's your first blank there. It wasn't just Jesus. There were other kings coming in, in as well. And so to the east, Jesus rides in from the east, uh, from the Mount of Olives on a donkey. Now, why do you ride a donkey? And why then? And why, why now? Um, you might want to know or remember that Jesus had come to the Passover, as he had done every year of his life, uh, some 33 times by now, from Nazareth, where he lived, up in the Galilee. That's 90 miles, friends. That's walking from Tulsa to here, through mountains, through dangerous passes. This is what Jesus has done. So Jesus, did he ride a donkey from Nazareth to Jerusalem, or did he walk it? He walked it. So why in the world would he hop on a donkey with a half a mile left to go? Seems weird, doesn't it? Well, you see, people knew the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah 9.9, it says that the Messiah will come on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal, uh, a, you know, a, a son of this donkey. The Messiah will come. So Jesus does. Jesus is making a political statement. He's saying, I'm here. I am who I say I am, and I am the Messiah. Get ready, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he intentionally makes a political statement by riding on this sure-footed beast of burden donkey down the Mount of Olives, which is a, is a huge terrain difference, and back up into the temple. No other time in all of Scripture do we find Jesus riding a donkey. Nowhere. Only at this moment, at the right time, as he goes into Jerusalem. So Jesus is riding in from the east. But there's also Pontius Pilate, right, who's riding in from the west, from Caesarea. Now, even today, when we go to the Holy Land here in June, we'll go over to Caesarea. And at Caesarea, which is by the Mediterranean, just north of Tel Aviv, um, what you'll see is the Hippodrome, where the Romans would have chariot races, right? It's kind of like Ben-Hur, if, you, if you've seen that movie, uh, where they're in the chariots and they're having the races. And Rome would take the best of the best, the biggest, baddest warriors they had, and they would take them from Caesarea, and they would march them or ride them in their chariots into Jerusalem for this week because they were not going to let it get out of hand, right? So Pontius Pilate rode in from the west from Caesarea. Now, uh, let's go back to parades. Y'all like parades? Anybody like parades? Fourth of July, you're going to have a parade. looks like this, right? Boy Scouts of what? America. It's a national deal, okay? And other people come. They want to see the Boy Scouts. They want to see other things. 
you know, like the little Shriner cars. And so it's a family event, right? So other people come and, you know, it's fun. You got your flags and, yay, Jesus is here. And so it's that sort of a mood. It's like, yay, this is fun. We remember that we're free. This is great. And then, so, so you've got that coming in from the east. But then let's take a look at the map for a second. So Jesus is here at the Mount of Olives. There's this huge divide in the Kidron Valley. He rides down this road on his donkey and up into the Temple Mount. Now, the Temple Mount is really, really high. So they can see over here and you can see over there. All right? It's just a straight shot, line of, line of sight. Um, and, it, and it's really cool to see that. So Jesus gets on the donkey knowing that all these people were watching. All the religious leaders in the temple were watching. And Pilate here at the Antonia Fortress, all the Romans were watching. And he gets on the donkey with all these people watching him over the valley. And he rides down right in front of them, and the crowds go wild. At the same time, Pilate has ridden in with thousands and thousands and thousands of chariots along this road to Emmaus, from Emmaus, back in from the west. And you'll notice that this is where they're going to crucify Jesus. But not just Jesus. These roads were lined with thousands of crosses as a warning to say, no, whatever happens this week, it's not going to get out of hand or this is going to happen to you. Now, before you leave today, I hope you'll uh, stop by the cross that's out in the gathering space. It is an exact replica, as best as scholars know, of what the cross of Jesus would have been like in terms of shape, weight, size, and height off the ground. You'll notice how low it is so that when you walked down this road into Jerusalem, if you happen to be coming in from the west, you would have to walk by thousands of people dying in front of your eyes where you could touch them as a warning that this was not going to get out of hand. And... Not just Pilate, but Herod Antipas, the very one who had already killed Jesus' cousin John. He had already beheaded him. He was coming in from the north. So you have three parades. Jesus coming in from here, sort of a family fun, yay, celebration, palm branches, coats event. And then you had Antipas coming in, which was religious and religious guards and, hey, uh, powers that be are going to come in. And then you had Pilate coming in with his henchmen. And it would have looked probably a little more like this. They had heavy metal rock in Pilate's day. But that would be the modern day equivalent. It's a military show of force. Don't cross us. We will crush you like a bug. We have tens of thousands of us heavily armed chariots, swords, the toughest soldiers in the world that they knew of. Rome was so powerful it said that the sun never set on Rome. It was so big from Africa and Europe and the Middle East. It covered all of it. They were the only superpower, and they marched into town to tell those Jews, this will not get out of hand. You understand this? And so there are all these things going on all at once on this day of celebration of what God was doing for the world. More than one king. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what kind of king is Jesus? There are lots of options here. you got the military might of Pilate, you've got the political wherewithal of Herod, and you have Jesus coming in on a donkey from the east side of town, where children are welcome, where women are welcome, where families are welcome. So who is this Jesus? What kind of king is he? What kind of king will he be? 
Well, first of all, he shows us on the very first time. Some gospels have this as really even Sunday afternoon, even before he gets settled. Other gospels have this as happening Monday morning. But what we know is the very first thing that Jesus does is he goes to the temple. He goes to the temple. And it doesn't go well. Not at all. Uh, the scripture says, then they came to Jerusalem, Jesus, he enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturns the tables of the money changers and sits and, and seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And then he began to teach. And he said this, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of what, friends? Prayer. Where God is in control, where we speak to God and we listen to God and God moves. For all nations, all nations, but you have made it a den of what? Robbers or thieves. Now, what was he getting at? Well, we have this wonderful altar up here um, where we remember what the Lord has done for us. But before Jesus, before he transforms this altar on this night, this Thursday night of Passover into the Lord's Supper, it was a meal. It was not a meal uh, yet. It was a place of sacrifice. You would take your bull, your ram, your heifer, your turtle doves, and you would sacrifice it. The priest would sacrifice it and burn it as a burnt offering. And, and after that happened, then you were made right with God, but you weren't made right with God without it. Uh, the problem was, of course, that if you were coming from Caesarea or you were coming up from around Nazareth or Galilee or you were coming uh, from another place, you, you might not have one of those or it got lost on the way or it died on the way. And so you had to get another one at the temple. Or you needed to make a, a cash offering to God uh, at the temple. Problem was that you couldn't use your normal money. You had to have not just a regular shekel. You had to have a temple shekel. Now, guess what? All of you are really good um, you know, money makers here, good businessmen and women. Do you think the temple shekel was cost more or less than your normal shekel? Much more. Do you think that a, uh, a perfect spotless sheep and the temple sheep cost more or less than the sheep you had in your backyard? Well, it's going to cost you a lot more, maybe 10 times more. Because they had you, because you could not made, be made right with God without their sheep, without their shekel. Um, if you go to the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem, uh, they have the layout of 2nd century Palestine um, and Jerusalem, and this is the temple here. And you'll notice that this is the Holy of Holies, where God uh, resided, the Ark of Covenant, and, and also where Abraham would have almost sacrificed Isaac. This is where the Dome of the Rock is today. Uh, this is the inner courts. These are the outer courts. Um, and here is Rome. This is where Pilate would hang out. This is where the Roman government, working with the Jewish religious leaders, built this together. Herod's temple was co-constructed by the Jews, overseen by the Romans. Uh, Herod's temple is right over here. Uh, where he, you, you notice how this is a red roof, and all of this is red roof over here? That's because this got all the money to build that. Because if, if you were going to live in a palatial place with pools and servants and all of that, somebody had to pay for it well. It was on the backs of all the people trying to get close to God. That's where the money changers hang out. And Jesus goes there first. And you'll notice these massive walls. And then there's these tiny little steps. Guess where you head first? You get in first. Right? The gift shop. That's where everybody has to go first, right? I mean, you got to get stuck there and get gouged before you can have any other business. And Jesus is enraged. I mean, you almost never see Jesus upset in, in, in the Bible, but here he is. And, and here are religious people separating people from God so that they could make money on their backs. And she's like, no, 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 not in my dad's house. No, 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 that's not what happens here. This is a house of prayer. You, you guys need to move on, right? So no. 
Now, Adam Hamilton writes this, and I, I think he's right. He says, this was the ancient equivalent of closing the mall the week before Christmas. I don't know about you, but I do all my shopping the week before Christmas. And Grandma needs a candle. It's on her list. So you imagine with me. You know, it's, it's two days before Christmas. You've got the last five things on your list. You go to Quail Springs Mall, and some religious nut has shut the place down. How do you feel about that? Oh, I'm, I'm upset. Because Christmas is about Grandma's candle at Wicks and things. And this guy has the nerve to say Christmas is not about a candle for Grandma at Wicks and things. What's he know? You know, I've got my tradition. We do our things. Grandma always gets a candle. This is her 56th candle this year. She really needs it. Well, no, Jesus says she doesn't need it. What she needs is your time. She needs you to take good care of her the other 364 days a year. She needs you to actually get to know what she needs. She actually needs some help around the house. Or maybe, maybe she needs you to cook a meal. Or maybe she needs your presence. Now, now how do you feel about this religious nut? Oh, he's on your last nerve now. He's messing up Christmas. And he's in your family business. He needs to back it up. Now, let me ask you this. What is the tax rate in Edmond? 8% roughly, right? So every time you buy something in Edmond, the government gets what? 8% of the deal. Now, you might also know that in retail and in church life, um, do you think money goes up or down around Christmas? You better go up or you're closed. Right? So imagine someone who would have the audacity to shut down and take away almost 10% or more, maybe 20% of the government's money. Because remember, it's all connected. So Jesus is messing with people's livelihoods, people's traditions, and the government all at once in this one move. And they killed him for it. He wasn't going to last a week. It's a good question for us. When Jesus starts messing with your money, what happens? People kill him or walk away. It happened then, happens now. But here's the thing that we're supposed to learn from this story. Jesus is a king who refused to allow people to be taken advantage of. He's like, no, 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 not here. You cannot take advantage of my people and certainly not do it in my name. Not at Christmas, not at Easter, not ever. Certainly not in the church. Not in the church. And so here, here's the thing, friends, uh, that I beg of you. If you have a friend that hasn't ever been to church or hasn't been to our church, and they're wondering if there's a place for them, if they would be welcome here, what's the answer? Yes. And it does not matter any of the details around that. Because Jesus, only time that he gets upset is when religious people put barriers between God and God's children, who includes everyone. And I suppose that there are folks that don't go to church because they don't know if, what they need to wear. I wear a suit because on this off chance that some old dude older than me walks in in a really nice suit, I want him to feel comfortable. But you'll notice that I'm the only one in a suit around here. And that's okay too. We intentionally have the band wear whatever they wear. Because who's welcome here? Everyone. And why is that? Because Jesus came in 316, God so loved the what? World. Greek translation is cosmos. The entire universe. 
that he gave himself. So anybody that you know is welcome. And, and with all that I am, friends, I'm going to try to never have the conversation with Jesus where he goes, Mark, what, why did you set up a system that might keep somebody away from me? Because I know that conversation's not going to go well. It's our job to welcome. That's our job. So the second thing that Jesus does, is he eats with disciples and he prays for them. He brings his friends around and he blesses them. So and uh, the first communion was shared during this Passover Seder, right? This, this meal that we've been talking about that commemorated uh, their freedom. Uh, and the scripture says it like this. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. He said, take, this is my body. We do this every week here. Then he takes a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. All of them drank from it and he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, not, not for a few, right? Truly, I tell you, I will never drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is already looking into heaven. He's glimpsing into the future and it's going to be beautiful, friends. It's going to be a party, friends, that everyone is welcome. And after this meal that is supposed to unite them, that's supposed to remind them, it's supposed to be a celebration, they are grumbling about who's going to be the best. Who gets to sit here? Who gets to sit where? Who's at the kids' table? Who's really at the big table? What's it going to be like? And Jesus is like, are you kidding me? This meal is supposed to be about us celebrating that we are no longer servants. We are free, but not free for self-indulgence, free to serve and bless and change and transform the world. So Jesus, even though everybody else should have known, that they were supposed to get cleaned up for supper. Jesus takes off his outer robe. He ties a towel around his white, around his waist, and he begins to wash feet. You see, Jesus invents servant leadership. Jesus models servant leadership. And, th- and that's what the scripture says. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he gets up from that table, he takes off his outer robe, and he ties a t- towel around himself. And he pours water into base and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around them. This is his last act with the disciples. And I don't know if he was so disgusted, or whether he had completed the task, or maybe it was a little of both, but he gets up and he walks out. And he goes to the garden, and he prays. Because he needs some super on his natural. He needs God to save him, to help him, to empower him, to make things new. And he goes out to the garden, outside of town, uh, at a much lower elevation now, and he can look up at the temple and knows what's about to happen to him, and he says, God, let this cup pass from me. Not yet, not my will, yours. Yours be done. And, and he is so distressed by this, he literally sweats drops of blood coming out of him. He's so afraid of what's going to happen, yet he's faithful there in Gethsemane. So he goes out as was his custom at the Mount of Olives, and the disciples, they followed him, and when he reached the place, he says to them, you pray too, you pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And then he separates himself even further. He withdraws from them about a stone's throw. He kneels down and he prays this prayer. You see, so Jesus is not only a servant king. Jesus is not only a king that cares about others and makes sure that you're not taken advantage of. Jesus is also a humble king who put the will of God above everything. Certainly above his own comfort, above his own will, above his own life. And that leads us to um, really what this week's all about until Easter, and that is that Jesus died. He didn't have to die. He chose it. He chose it for you. He chose it for your grandparents, for everybody that's gone before you, and everybody who's going to come after you. Jesus dies for the world, for the cosmos, not just this world or this time, not just for one nation, but for all nations, not for one people, but for all people. And, and, and the thing is, it's so hard to kill 
this man because he's done nothing wrong. It takes five trials, friends, five of them, five different trials held in the middle of the night. They, they take Jesus, they arrest him outside the city in the dark. Jesus kiss, uh, Judas kisses him, and they pull him outside of town to Caiaphas' house. After five different trials, that's your blank there, Jesus is sentenced to death by crucifixion. You see, the, the Sanhedrin was not allowed by law to meet at night, yet they did. They changed the rules. They weren't allowed to meet unless all 70 of them were there. They were not. You're not allowed to convict someone unless you have two witnesses. They did not. And yet it went forward. Caivus then sends him to Rome because, you know, oh, it's not religiously right. We don't want it on our hands. Oh, we'll have Rome do our dirty work for it. And Pilate says, are you kidding me? And then he says, ah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a political advantage of this. I'm going to send him to Herod Antipas who was there for Passover, because Herod had always wanted to see Jesus. He had already killed his cousin. He wanted to see what, what Jesus could do. So he sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Pilate says to the people, hey, you know, I really don't have anything to do with this. What about Barabbas? He's a well-known bad guy. A thief, a murderer. Ba- I mean, you name it, Barabbas had done it. Why don't you take him? And the religious folks had worked it out. They were like, no, no, no. We're going to kill Jesus. Notice that it's the religious people who killed Jesus. It's not the sinners. It's not the tax collectors. It's not the prostitute. It's not the ne'er-do-wells. It's the high and mighty, the righteous, that kill our Lord. The scripture says, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many of you all will know that this is a quote directly from the Psalms, from the songbook of the church of the time. But, but let's also hold that and know that Jesus, this is also true for him. That in this moment, in his full humanity, he, he doesn't just hop down off the cross. He places his full trust in the Father, God Almighty, and says, not my will, yours be done. He had already prayed it in, in Gethsemane. He feels forsaken. He feels broken. God is far from him. He is crying out in anguish. Yet at the end of his life, he says, not my will, but yours be done. It is finished, and into your hands I commend my spirit. And so I, I want to lift up to you um, this critical moment in all of our lives. We all have that moment where we feel far from God. And if you haven't yet, you will. Pastors feel it too. Sometimes it's called the dark night of the soul. Uh, some, sometimes it's for things beyond our control, and sometimes it's of our own making. But we all have that day. Where you're out of work, you've put in resume after resume after resume after resume, and you don't get a call back. And you wonder if you're going to have food to eat, if, if you'll be able to retire well, or whether you're going to be on the street. There are young people here who who's really, what, all they want is for somebody to love them. For somebody to call them back, to be in their life. And it's, it's not happened. They thought they'd be married by 24, and they're 34, and they're still single, and they don't know why, and they don't know why God hates them. God doesn't hate them, but it can feel that way. People who want children who can't have children, people who didn't want children have 18 children, and, you know, they just seem everywhere all the time. And in, it's in these moments where your, your, your children are wayward or your spouse walks out the door or you get a phone call from a doctor and the lab results are cancer. And it's in these moments we have a choice to make. Every one of us have a choice to make. We can despair or we can hold on to hope. 
Jesus somehow, someway, in the midst of the most incredible, horrendous tragedy, holds on to a hope within him of God's future. Not just the promises of God, what he's done, not just what God is doing, but what God intends yet to do with him. So he did not despair. He entrusted his whole life into what God would do next, as, even as he hung on a cross. And that's the power of the resurrection. It's on his way, even, even when you can't see it. Now, I want you to know, though, that, that not everybody makes that choice. And you know this. Because the temptation is, is to be Judas. Following Jesus' death, Judas, who had betrayed him, he, I think Judas really thought that Jesus was going to step up, you know, wipe out Rome, and it was going to be great. Just like, I mean, Judas was a zealot. He was really hoping that Jesus would bring back the power, that Jesus would bring everything, make it great. But no, 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 no. Jesus dies. And, and Judas goes back to the people that he had sold him out to, and he takes the coins, and he, he gives it back to them, and, and they just laugh at him like, oh, Judas, come on. What did you think was going to happen? And he hangs himself. He runs out of hope. It's the darkest hour. And, and instead of trusting God with the next move, he takes his own life. And that's a real choice. But imagine with me. What if, what if Judas had waited three days? Just three days. Judas was three days away from the greatest story that could ever be told. Can you imagine Jesus raised from the dead, receiving Judas in his arms and saying, I love you, I forgive you, you are welcomed in my family too. Just three days away. Now depending on how you count it, from three o'clock Friday afternoon to Sunday morning dawn, I mean, it's not even really three days, it's like one and a half. I mean, it's just right there. It's so close. But when we're in those dark moments, when we're in that despair, this sort of depression and just horrible weight comes upon us. And it's hard to remember that God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And if you're there, I want you to hold on, friends. Because Easter's coming. We are not Good Friday people. We are not simply Passover people. Easter is coming. Resurrection is this close. Hold on. Because hope is the mother of encouragement. Hope is the mother of courage. Hope is the mother of enduring. And Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. But we have to hold on to Sunday. Because we all have these Good Friday days. And so to say it another way is this. Do you believe right now, as a child of God, that your best days are ahead of you or behind you? Seriously. I'm 49. Every day I get up, my body hurts. That didn't happen 20 years ago. I got up, I felt great. I didn't know anything, but I felt great. Right? Here's the thing. Are your best days ahead of you or behind you? Wait, 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 wait. What kind of church is this? This is a... Seriously, you guys don't know? A Christian church. A United Methodist Christian Church. And our Savior is who? Jesus Christ. And the reason we worship Him is because why? Oh, you're scaring me now. Easter! I'm going to have to preach five times a week now. Easter! Easter! We're Easter people! So, if you are 108 and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, are your best days ahead of you or behind you? Ahead of you. If you're 111 and you believe in Jesus Christ, and the resurrection from the dead. And you are given a new body with life and peace and health. And all the world who would follow him are welcome. Are your days 
ahead of you or behind you? Which is better? Ahead of you. Because of the resurrection, friends. Never, ever, ever forget the hope of the resurrection. That's who we are. And so, friends, I beg you, go to church on Easter. Here or somewhere else, but don't miss it. This is our day. We are Easter people, friends. We are Easter people. So, whatever your age, whatever you're going through, however dark it feels to you, whatever despair you have, I promise you, your best days are ahead of you in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lean in there, friends. In Jesus' mighty and powerful and wonderful name. Amen.